I'm on another board of a company that owns medical office buildings in, in, in and around hospitals. And I'm just going on a, a four hour tour tomorrow here in Denver of, of their operations. I love to get out and touch and feel it. I do believe that leaders, see, whether they be CEOs, it doesn't matter what, what levels they, they, they are, but they, they need to become customer facing. They need to understand what's really happening out there. They can't sit in the ivory tower. And by the way, on this feedback, Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is our Transformative Influence in Leadership mini-series with Walt Rakowicz, author of Transfluence. Walt, I'm really looking forward to this mini-series. Hopefully people listen to your original interview on, on the show. But as far as this, this second three parts here, these next three parts, can you give people just a little bit of a preview of, of A, why you wanted to do the mini-series and maybe what they're in for a little bit? Yeah, I will, Jess. I'm, I'm, first of all, let me just say I'm, I'm really excited to be on myself. And I, I so enjoyed the first time that we, we talked together on the podcast. So I'm really glad to be back. And, you know, you and I, I was talking to you a little bit more about things that I'd like to delve into a little deeper. And, and I didn't really have a chance to cover it on, on my first podcast. So the first one is just, I, I, I really believe that leaders need to bring purpose and meaning to those that they lead um, in the workplace. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that on this, this in-depth podcast. The second one, though, is the chapter that I wanted to write and I never did write. And that is uh, when you encounter adversity, run toward it. And I want to talk a little bit about adversity, which is the very thing that we all shy away from as leaders. But in fact, we find that it's actually our greatest opportunity. And the third thing is fear not, have faith. And that is that, you know, when you face that adversity, so many times you fear. And, and actually, I find that in leadership, fear can be a very, very difficult thing for leaders to deal with. And the, the way to deal with it is to have faith. And I'm going to talk about faith from, so, from three or four different perspectives, at least as, as I thought about it when I had to lead our company through, through a very difficult turnaround. So those are the three things that I'd like to cover in more depth with you. And, and just for a little bit of reference, in case somebody's just jumping in here and they didn't catch part one, and they don't know about your time as CEO of Prologis, you know, which is, I think, now the third largest real estate company in the world with like $120 billion in assets or something. But, but you were there during 2008 from the, the stock market low of $500, $500 million market cap and, and rebuilt it through those years and eventually the merger and, and basically a $50 billion market cap by the time you left. Am I getting those numbers right? That's pretty close. Yeah, that's very close. I'll, I'll, I'll go with those numbers. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this idea of bringing purpose and meaning to leadership, you know, I know in your book, you talk about the importance of leaders providing and bringing this purpose and, and meaning for, for the team, for the employees. Can you talk about any evidence of why that's needed? Yeah, I can. And let me talk first of all about a book I read last year, and it's uh, been around for years and years and years, but, and you'll, you'll probably laugh. I'm sure you've read it. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. And it was written by a gentleman by the name of Viktor Frankl. For any of you listeners who, who want to uh, go get it, it was an incredible book. And Viktor Frankl was, was a Jew who 
survived the Nazi concentration camps and was really one of the very few that did. And, uh, you know, in the book, it's interesting. He, he comes to the conclusion that having meaning and purpose in life are really the defining characters or characteristics, excuse me, for people that have fulfillment. And in his case, it not only extended his life, but he went on to make a difference in the lives of so many people after he wrote his book. And in the book, he says that he who has a why to live um, can bear almost any how. And I think he's right. And I always wanted to think about, you know, is that important in business? And I think it, it, it is, you know, in the workplace today, we need, we compete for talent when you think about it. Now, I know that the unemployment rate is a little bit higher today because of COVID, but pre-COVID, we were at a three and a half percent unemployment rate and that's frictional unemployment. And there's very few people out of work at that number on one hand. But on the other hand, if you want to hire the best people, truly the best people, I think you got to pay attention to this. And 64% of millennials say that making the world a better place is a priority. And by the way, those millennials, 75% of the workplace by 2025 will be those millennials. And I know when I took a job in 1979, it was my first job out of college. Let me tell you, I was not thinking about meaning and purpose. The only thing I was thinking about, it was a very transactional thing. I just needed a job. And I didn't really care about my company, what they did, but that's completely different today. Another person who really inspired me is a, a gentleman by the name of William Pollard, who once built a company called Service Master. Everybody knows of them. One of, I think one of the um, most incredible companies in America. And he once, uh, once said that people want to work for a cause, not a living. I actually believe that too. He said, when there is alignment between the cause of the company and the cause of its people, move over because there will be extraordinary performance. And I found the same thing in trying to galvanize Prologis, you know, galvanize our performance in the financial crisis. I found that our pre-people actually did crave something broader than just turning around this bankrupt company. You know, I think they craved meaning. They craved purpose in what they did. I think it helped them get up in the morning, quite frankly. And right or wrong, these days in business, your people spend half their waking hours at work. And even if they're not at work, they're on their cell phones or they're on Zoom calls these days, you know, they're doing something. But it, and, and generally speaking, it has something to do with work. And so I think we as leaders have to provide them with the opportunity for meaning and purpose. And I think in doing so, we, you know, we sort of improve the well-being of our employees and and, and we do something I talk in our book, in my book, excuse me, about shareholder value. I, I think companies are not just in business to make profits. Don't get me wrong. We have to be profitable or we don't exist. But at the end of the day, I think it's one metric. I think the larger metric is what kind of value are you creating for shareholders? And that gets into something deeper. That gets into employee engagement. That gets into employee well-being. That gets into the reputation of the company, all those things. And I think leaders need to pay attention to those things. And I think part of that is creating purpose and meaning in the lives of the people that they lead. You know, I'm really glad you brought that book up. I feel like Man's Search for Meaning has actually been one of the most important books of my life. It's interesting when you talk about that purpose and meaning. I don't know if you remember the stories, but one of the ones that impacted me the most as far as the direction of what that should be was when he talked about how their friends, they could always tell when their friends were going to commit suicide, like, you know, run out into the, into the fence and get themselves shot by the guards or something because they'd start giving away their cigarettes instead of smoking them. Right? Oh, yeah, I remember that. Because it was like yeah. their currency, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And he said, it's interesting that none of the self 
self-focused arguments would keep them from it. But when they would talk to them about others-focused reasons, it would work. And they would say, hey, didn't you tell us that your scientific research never got published? You know, are you really going to rob the rest of us from getting that by, by leaving Earth today? And now none of us get to benefit from that. Don't you think you should stick this out? Or didn't you tell us that you think your daughter made it? Isn't she going to need a dad after all of this? Yeah. You know? yep. it, was, it was interesting to me that insight of that, that others focused purpose ends up being the most powerful. Yeah. And he talks about his own, you know, his own meaning and purpose created largely from just thinking about his wife, remembering his wife and remembering how good it was, you know, with his wife. And whatever it is, I think it's got to be broader. It's got to be bigger than just you. Because if you just focus on you, you're going to give away the cigarettes. Well, I also love the point that he he makes that basically, it's not life's job to come tell you what your purpose is. It's your job to get out there and make the meaning and discover the purpose yourself, not to have the purpose thrust upon you. It's interesting, that level of personal responsibility that's a theme through the whole book, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's, it's, it's so true. Although what I, will, what I will be saying a little bit more today is I think that I truly believe workers are so, you know, workers are just so busy with their lives and they do spend 50% of their time at work and then they got to go home to their families. And so sometimes people want to have that meaning and purpose, but they do have to be pointed in the right direction sometimes just by virtue of the fact that they uh, don't have the time to be and or, or, and or they don't make it a priority. But, and so I think part of being a leader is part of recognizing that and providing that meaning and purpose. And, and it's just not altruistic. I'll talk about altruistic things as time goes on, but it's also about understanding your job and how you fit in, you know? Yeah, it, it is interesting, this responsibility as leaders, if we're the ones setting the schedules, are we giving people the room? Are we giving people the room to do work that matters and work that's fulfilling and, right? Well, we, we, we may not unless we're cognizant of it. And being cognizant of, a, cognizant of it and creating that sort of space is part of what a leader should be doing. Well, it kind of leads me to my next question. I think about this idea of transformative influence or transfluence. And maybe you can talk about where that word came from to title your book. Yep. Um, but I, I want to talk, I'm really interested to hear how you feel like that impacts or helps in the creation of purpose and meaning. So for, to answer your initial question, transfluence means transformative influence. It's, it's short for those two words put together. And the central core idea of transfluence is that it's not about you, but it's about the influence that you have on other people. And as a leader, you should be thinking about that. And, and if you do it effectively, I think you'll find that people, that the people you influence will do it to other people. In other words, it multiplies. It can be leveraged, to use a business term. And so this idea of influence is not just about the people you directly lead. You know, it's, it's also about having influence on people around you, your friends, your family, your communities that you live in, you know, and we're all leaders. You know, it's not like, oh, my boss is a leader, but I'm not a leader. Well, that's not true. We're all leaders. We lead our families. We lead our friends. We lead in the communities that we're in. And I do believe that leaders who have a positive influence in doing so provide meaning and purpose to the people that they lead. People engage more when they have leaders that that, that provide them with this. So I think that there are three things, Jess, that people want to feel part of today in the workplace. They want to experience these things. And again, when I took my first job in 1979, I did not feel any of this stuff. But I think I think this is what people how people feel today. Number one, I think they need to feel 
you know, they need to understand how their job fits into the overall strategy of the company and kind of where they sit in the company. The second thing is I think they have to understand how their company adds value in the world. You know, what is their company's purpose for existing? And the third thing is that you know, I think they need to sort of feel what they can do in their companies to make their communities better. I know that sounds funny, but I'm the chairman of the board of a, an organization called Colorado Uplift. And we, you cannot believe the number of companies today that are coming to us and saying, hey, this is what you do. We'd like to see if we can create a program where our employees help you side by side, do this, make a difference in the communities. We want to create this for our employee base. And if we can create this, we're willing to gift a certain amount of money to your charity. Another example, my daughter, my daughter graduated uh, from Vanderbilt five years, six years ago now. And I can remember saying to her, you know, what, who, who are you interviewing out there? You know, who do you want to work for? And she's like, she singled out the companies who could provide her purpose and meaning. I'm not kidding you. She said, well, they, I don't want to interview. She was looking at consulting firms. She said, I don't really want to interview at X, Y, and Z because I don't really like what they stand for. And some of it, quite frankly, was her getting, you know, looking at a website. And some of it was her getting firsthand knowledge from some of the people that she talked to. But she really wanted to go to work for a company who made a difference and that allowed her that opportunity to make a difference as well. And so, you know, as it relates to transfluence, I think it's about influence. I think that's what the, the, the name of the book is all about. And so I'm, I'm taking that a little bit more into the workplace and I'm, I'm taking, I'm extending it and saying, it's not just about the person that is your, you know, directly reports to you. It's broader than that. And you as a leader need to participate in that. No, I think, I think one of the reasons that your book stood out to me as one of my new favorite books and, and really spoke to me is there's a lot of people who talk about some similar themes to this, but often it's not very grounded in actually getting the work done as well. And it's, it can sometimes be like theories that seem to float away and, and people can't relate it to actually accomplishing the mission of the business of, you know, in your case, having, having those warehouses actually get my Amazon stuff to me or whatever it was at Prologist, right, that day. And, and so for me, this, like where you're so deeply committed to this and deeply committing to, you know, pulling a company out of bankruptcy to becoming, you know, a real star in the industry. Can you talk about, let's kind of go through those things that you brought up. So thinking about this first one here, helping somebody understand how their job fits into the overall strategy of the company. Can you talk about how that's done? Yep. So I think it's, and, and you're right, I'm, I'm, I'm not just, this is not just about, hey, we've got this program where we give back here. And th- th- it's not just about that. It is about, it is about making sure that employees feel m- meaning in what they do day to day. And I think that they first have to have a very clear understanding of their strengths and weaknesses. I think they have to under- have a clear understanding of how they fit in to the organization. And I, I think they have to un- also understand how they improve and do their jobs better. I mean, that's the fundamental, that's where it starts. Because then if they get fired up about that, they can then take the extension to the altruistic things that I'll talk about as, as we go on in this, in this podcast. So I think it's all about raising the level of transparency with them. You know, I talk in the book about baseline assessments. I talk in the book about coaching. You know, I talk in the book about little things like, 
Briggs-Myers testing and strength finders or whatever you choose to use. And let me tell you a quick story of something that happened. So we had, this was years ago, we had an administrative assistant at, at Prologis that wanted to go to business school, got into business school and saw themselves as, as, as something that could progress within the organization to something else other than being an, an administrative assistant. And this person had a real desire to go into investor relations, IR. And we liked this person a lot and thought they had a tremendous amount of upside in the organization. And so we gave them a chance. And um, gender neutral on this, by the way, that's why I'm, I'm referring to them. And when they got to the IR department, after about three or four months, things did not work out all that well. And everybody was scratching their head. And finally, the head of IR said, I think we need to give this person a strength finders or a Briggs-Myers test because I'm not sure they're fitting in to this department. And when they did, they found out that this person was woefully deficient in some really critical areas in IR, like financial acumen and attention to detail, those sorts of things. And I think sometimes we set employees up to fail. And you know, and so part of this is getting employees fired up with what they do every day, not just not just that they have some upside, but but putting them in the right place and, and putting giving them an opportunity to to shine, you know, and 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 I think part of that too is making sure that they get proper evaluations every year, 360 degree evaluations. I'm a big believer in that, so that they hear from four or five or ten people how they think they're doing and, and are they fitting in the organization. So that's part of it. And then I think one of the most important things is that employees, I think, need to know how the, how the organization, how their job fits into the overall organizational strategy. I think certain leaders are really good at setting the strategy and they're very good at articulating maybe what the strategy is, but they are not good at pushing it down throughout the organization so that XYZ person understands how what they do fits in. And that is a problem. And I, I think that managers need to, I think leaders need to figure out how it gets cascaded down throughout the organization through training, through communications, through continuous feedback. And that needs to be part of the program. Sort of how do we roll this strategy out all the way down to the maintenance worker in, in, in your organization. And I'm going to give you a really interesting thing. I'm on the board of Iron Mountain, and I think they do this actually quite well. And one of the things as a board member that I'm a big believer in is going out to the sites and actually seeing firsthand how they get their job done. In other words, the customer interface, okay? And so Iron Mountain stores corporate records. And so trust is actually a really a, a, a big deal to them. They put records in warehouses and data centers and all that stuff. And so their website, if you read their website, it says that they're quote unquote trusted by 95% of the Fortune 1000. That word trust emanates all throughout their organization. So a couple of years ago, I spent five hours with a, a driver who picks up the records and puts them in, in an Iron Mountain warehouse or data center, whatever that is. And he picks up the records and he, he's a direct customer interface. And so I asked him, what's the most important thing you do? And he said, customer service. He said, I build trust with my customers. And I was like, man, you passed that check mark. I, I mean, you know, he, it was perfect. And then I, and I also asked him, 
you know, why he thinks the comp- what he, why he thinks what the company does is important. And he said, information is important to companies and someone needs to protect it. That's us. Now there's a person who understood his role, was proud of it, okay? Knew what the company did, knew how he fit in. And I'm telling you, he came to work ex- excited every day because he understood where he fit in the organization. He understood what the organization did, all those things, right? He could repeat it back to me. He didn't make any mistakes. He knew. And that's what I'm talking about. So when people talk about meaning and purpose, and we're going to talk more about this, I know, in in this podcast, but I'm telling you, it starts fundamentally with making sure that people are excited about what they do. And they have to understand where they stand in the company. They have to be evaluated. They have to understand, you know, they got to be put in the right place and they really have to understand, you know, how they fit in. I love that. I think one of my favorite things that you just talked about in that, Walt, is the feedback loop. You know, I think as leaders, it's very easy to sit in the boardroom and pat ourselves on the back because of our communications program or the reports we're getting back from the HR people or the managers or the whatever, of the, what, the, what the score was on the engagement survey or something, right? And it's so simple, but so uncommon for people at the top, people on the board, the CEO, the chairman to actually go down to that customer level. Like when you said you spent five hours with them, you know, there's a lot of CEOs, especially in the large organizations that don't often spend 15 minutes doing that in any given month or quarter, right? And you think about this, like that feedback loop of instead of, you know, having everything sanitized through all the layers on its way up of trying to please the boss, of the boss, you know, going right down to the factory floor, going right down to the customer interaction, and seeing it with their own eyes and, and asking the kind of questions that would bring out whether the water is getting to the end of the row on this or not as a feedback loop of, hey, is, it, is our, our intentions actually getting executed here? Do, does, do the people who are actually t- talking to our customers have that feeling in the bones where it will come out or is it just a nice poster on the wall, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, it's ironic that you'd say that because interestingly enough, and I didn't time it this way, but tomorrow... I'm on another board of a company that owns medical office buildings in, in and around hospitals. And I'm just going on a, a four-hour tour tomorrow here in Denver of, of their operations. I love to get out and touch and feel it. I do believe that leaders, see, whether they be CEOs, it doesn't matter what, what levels that they, they are, but they, they need to become customer-facing. They need to understand what's really happening out there. They can't sit in the ivory tower. And by the way, on this feedback loop thing, you know, I, I, I'm, I struggled many years ago. I struggled with giving feedback to people that worked for me, especially when I didn't spend a lot of time with them. But that's why I think 360 degree evaluations are critically important because gaining feedback from so many other people other than just your boss, who doesn't always, are not always with you day to day. But the 20 people that you've asked for the feedback who work for you, who touch you every day, they work with you and, and, and you know, they're, they're going to give you pretty honest feedback as to how they enjoy working with you or not. I think that's a boss's best tool is to ask other people how this person is doing as opposed to having to come up with all the answers themselves. So it needs to be broad. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a lot of interplay between your number one and your number two there. And, and I kind of want to transition that to the number two of like, not just how does their job 
fit into the overall strategy of the company, but, but what is the company's purpose? Like besides making money, you know, it makes me think about, I think it's from good to great, that quote of Merck pharmaceuticals where they say like oxygen is vital to life, but it's not the purpose of life. Like mm, profit, profits are vital to business, but then they don't have to be the only purpose of business. Right. right. Yep. Can you talk about this, like helping employees understand the purpose of the business, like, and, and how a leader can do that? So I think it's critically important that employees understand the why. Why do we do what we do? You know, why is it important? And I think companies have, Jess, I think companies have come a long way on this, on this issue. I always hearken back to my initial job at Price Waterhouse, and I knew we were an accounting firm, but I'm not really sure I knew, <laughs> you know, how we added value in the world until I got out there and really worked. But, you know, now you, you look at Nike. Nike says, well, we're in business to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Okay, I get that. You know, Google, we're in business to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Even CVS Pharmacy, we're in business to be the easiest pharmacy retailer for customers to use. I mean, you know, you, you think about that, and at Prologis, the truth of the matter is, I didn't spend that much time on this as a leader. I, I really didn't. And Part of it was because we were trying to turn the company around and we were on the verge of bankruptcy and, and we had bigger fish to fry, at least I thought at the time. And, and frankly, we, I always wondered, well, we're in the warehouse real estate business, you know? And so how can I talk about that in a, in a glorified way? Come on, we just lease warehouse space to companies. And I just wasn't thinking about it deep enough. And, but now if you look at the Prologis website, you know, it's a little bit different. It says, you know, something like we help customers facilitate timely delivery that makes modern life possible. How cool is that? And so there, it doesn't matter what business you're in, but I do think that it, what does matter is that your people understand what they're there to do, what the, the company is there to do and how it adds value in the world. I think that's part of creating that purpose not just for your customers and not just for your shareholders and your stakeholders, but actually don't underestimate how important it is to your, to your employees to understand what that looks like too. And I think another aspect of providing purpose is kind of what companies do with their money. That's changed over the years too, you know? And so do they invest it back into their communities? And so you've got companies like Patagonia, who is you know, they commit 1% of their sales or 10% of their profits to environment, the environment, you know, or environmental causes, or you've got salesforce.com that is investing. I think it's their one, one, one program or some such where they're putting a certain amount of profits into organizations throughout the world. And so whatever it is, I think it is important that the company identify what they do and, and have it ingrained in their employees. This is what we do. And I hope you're proud of it because we are. And this is how we're going to give back to the communities that we're in. And I think that also creates a tremendous amount of purpose and meaning to the employees that, that, that work there. You know, I, I think about those things in action. Our, the charity we started 10 years ago, Child Rescue Association that combats child trafficking. We've had employees at Salesforce who they get, you know, their 1% of paid time to help with charities and the, and they can help, they can like make grant requests from the organization. And, and we had Salesforce employees, not just donate time and pursue money, but then go rally their coworkers to come do the same thing 
and it, it made a difference for our charity, you know, yep. and absolutely. I think about these stories, you know, we've done a lot of work. The consulting firm we own has done a lot of work with the Utah Transit Authority out here. Okay. And 2,500 people run in the mass transit and, you know, there's the guys that do the brakes on the trains and the buses and they'd never see a customer in their life. Right. And they're like, why we do this isn't immediately apparent when you just go to the break shop every day, right? <laughs> and I saw them make a video and like made me cry. It was this handicapped guy who in a wheelchair, not very financially well-to-do. And it was him and what a bright spot he is on that bus driver's route because he gets on the same bus every day, he greets everybody on the bus and they get him to work. And he says that not only would he not have a job if it wasn't for the UTA because he couldn't afford any other kind of transportation, but like it was like for those of us who have friends and, and mobility and things, a job is like great for money. But for him, it's like his whole social life. It's all sorts of things for him. Right. And like, it's like such a touching thing of like, hey, guys who are doing the breaks, you're, you're allowing this guy to have a life you know, and, uh, but it takes the time and effort and, and frankly, a few dollars on leadership's part to have a video like that made. And then to ensure that 2,500 employees across the organization actually see it. Right. And how powerful it is if you do that. And that's exactly what I'm talking about in terms of leadership. And I'm not just talking about the CEO of a company. I mean, this sort sort of thing transcends all throughout um, companies. You as a leader have more power to bring these thoughts and ideas to other people's minds than you think. And, 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 and what you've just talked about is a perfect example of it. Perfect example. So I guess maybe my next question is, when you think about organizations where they don't have some great tearjerker story like that, <laughs> immediately apparent, and maybe it takes a bit more work for them to, to articulate a meaning, you know, articulate some meaning that matters besides just the transactional, we provide people a job, Right. What are some ways that companies can provide for their workforces to make their communities better? Like what, how as a leader, can somebody be investigating that and trying to bring more of that into their company? You know, and that's a great, great question, Jess. And that is where we were because I, I erroneously, I never felt that the business, well, I, I struggled with how I communicated the importance of the business is probably the best way of saying it. But I don't think it's just about what the company does, like you say. I think it's also about what companies do to encourage employees to give back. And that's what I felt we could, that could be our fastball. And because, so every company in my view needs to have a set of values that they live by. And I think leaders need to make sure that employees are, are challenged to live out those values at home, in their communities, just as much as they are at work. And and, you know, I think leaders do that by living out those values day to day. They don't, they can't just talk the talk. They have to walk the walk. And one of the ways that they walk the walk, I think, is, is showing people how they can give back and, and providing them with those opportunities. In other words, showing employees how they can witness the values that they talk about in the workplace outside the walls of the workplace, because it needs to move outside as well. And I found that as a leader, it's really important to install a heart of giving in your people so that they understand that, you know, giving can and should be a part of their lives. Let me tell you a story that happened to me that I, I, do, I do write about in the book and I haven't really talked much about, but it was really impactful to me. So I had a, a really good friend of mine who was very involved in junior achievement. And he said to me, well, let's, let's do junior achievement together. And I said, well, God, I'm, I'm just so busy, blah, 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 all this stuff. 
And he, he said, no, 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 we got to do this. And I said, okay, I'll do it. But I'll, I'll do it under one condition. And that is that we go to an inner city school. I don't want to go to my kids' schools, for example. And he said, no, no problem. Let's do that. So we, we picked a school that wasn't far from our corporate headquarters. And we walked in and we were talking about what well, the, the, the program that day was to talk about what you do at work and what, what do policemen do? This, we went to a second grade class, by the way. What do policemen do? What do firemen do? And then the, the teacher got on to, okay, now, well, what do you do? And I said, I tried to dumb it down, you know, second grade class. I said, well, my company builds buildings. And it wasn't more than about a minute later, the second grade girl tugged on my pants and she looked at me and she said, sir, if you build buildings, can you build my grandmother and I a house? And I said, ooh, I didn't know what to say. And I I was stunned and I looked at the teacher and the teacher bailed me out. And um, she said, no, they don't build those kinds of buildings, unfortunately. And so then I had a discussion with the teacher after that. And I said, wow, that was a kind of a powerful question. And she said, well, 30, about 30% of our class has no father. 30% of our class have fathers that are in jail. And she said, in this particular little girl, lives with her grandmother in a basement of some of some other house because mom's not around either. And I started weeping. I mean, it was so hard. And so anyway, I, I thought, geez, I'm, I'm running this company. I mean, we got to do something about this. So I, I came back and, and we immediately began to commit our workforce to educating kids in the inner city. And we adopted an, an elementary school near our headquarters and we taught junior achievement there and we taught all kinds of classes. And then we started raising money for the school. And then we started sponsoring clothes, clothing drives for these kids. And, 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 you know, we bought them holiday gifts and, you know, conducted career days, you name it. We did all this stuff for these kids. Okay. And you know what happened? It was really interesting. At first it started out with a couple of us. And then we put the word out to the company in Denver and lo and behold, we had engaged near 50% of our workforce doing this. And I was amazed at the sense of pride that our workforce had in doing this. And, you know, and so I, I, I said, geez, we need to do this all throughout the company. And so we started this program where I, and we had about a hundred offices worldwide. And so I met with all of our worldwide leaders. And I said, look, in every single city throughout the world, we're going to do something. It doesn't, I mean, junior achievement doesn't, doesn't exist in Germany, I don't think, but what, you know, whatever you want to do, pick it. And I had people in France that said, well, Walt, you know, this is not something that we do in France. The government gives back here. We pay taxes and the government does it. And I said, well, let's change that program. How about if you do it? And, and in Japan, they had the same initial reaction, but they realized in Japan, what they really, they're very clean people. And, and, and so they started cleaning the very cities that we were building buildings in. That's what they did. And the cities were amazed that people building buildings in their cities were actually going out for free and cleaning up their cities. And in France, they said, well, what about if we did a bike ride, you know, a la Tour de France, everybody in France loves to ride bikes. Well, what if we raise money through, through having this big bike ride? And, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of people or thousands of people today actually do this, but they started this, this bike ride to raise money there. And, and so all over the world, people were doing things that they weren't accustomed to doing, but what they realized is how important it was to give, how it touched their hearts, right? 
And that's what I think leaders are in business to do partly. And that is to point their employees in a direction that creates that meaning for them, creates that stickiness, that creates that, that retention, if you will, where employees say, you know what, I'm going to kill to work for this company. I love this company. Okay. And so that's what, to me, you asked the question before, what is Transfluence about? I think Transfluence is about giving of yourself, which allows you to influence people in a positive way. I, I think we need to provide that broadly. It's not just about the people we lead directly, but it's the people all around us. And I call it a force of nature in my book, in the end of the book. And I think if you want to create a great culture today, if you want to really attract good people, I think you have to give them meaning in their jobs. They have to understand where they, you know, where they stand. They have to understand how they fit into the strategy. They have to understand the strategy period and they have to be proud of the strategy, but they also have to be pointed in the right direction and given an opportunity to give back. I believe that's never been a part of business, but I think it's a big part of business today. I think the next generation, the millennial generation and, and Gen, Gen Z and Everybody else coming up, increasingly, that's what they want. And I think as leaders, we need to do a better job of providing them with that in the workplace. You know, such a powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. And as you're talking, I just can't help but think about us. Like, you know, my partners and I were so busy trying to grow our business. And one of the big reasons is my own personal convictions about this, this Child Rescue Association, you know. Unfortunately, my mother-in-law was a victim of child trafficking in California as a 12-year-old, and she was the fourth generation in their family, but she broke the cycle, so it didn't happen to my wife. So it's like so close to home, right? Mm. And I, you know, I can be more of like a, a single-minded guy, like transactional, like get her done kind of guy. And we've been bringing on several new people in the last few months. And it makes me think like, why aren't I letting them in on this? Like I'm trying to build this business so we can have the lifestyle we want and so we can pay for child rescue the way I want to. Why aren't I like, why aren't I doing this? Why aren't we having like distinct times of like what we're going to do about it? You know, we've, we've done like, we've got some guys at a special operations community and intelligence agencies that have supported different law enforcement units and undercover rescue missions and stuff like this, right? But one of our main things right now is we're supporting this group, America's Kids Belong, they got permission from different states to shoot videos of the most at-risk foster care kids to help these kids get adopted. And 60% of trafficking victims, according to the FBI, are kids who have been through the foster care system. And so we've got this opportunity for like a thousand bucks. These kids can get adopted. Like, it's like, I don't know, I can't remember the stat. Something like 20% of kids get adopted within 30 days of the video, 50% within the first year, and almost 100% of the kids who don't age out end up getting adopted within two years. Wow. And it's like, it costs us thousands to do undercover rescue missions with cops in Central America or on the border, some of the stuff, right? Yeah. And so from like a capital efficiency standpoint, this is like 30 times cheaper. And you save kids from that much pain and suffering by getting them in a forever, forever family so that they don't even, you know, end up aging out of the system and, and dealing with youth homelessness and all the problems, right? And I'm thinking like, yeah, I haven't had, I haven't even presented the opportunity for our team to spend time on that this week, even though I spent time on it. My wife was actually doing interviews this week at one of the film shoots of, of these kids. And I haven't let the rest of the team on it. And, and why wouldn't they get the same reward out of it that I get? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think if we could unleash corporate America on some of the problems that we had, and I'm not just talking about giving people jobs, I'm talking about actually have them digging into bigger problems like the ones you're talking about. 
and, and companies associated with it, putting money side by side. As And don't get me wrong, there's a number of companies that do do this today. But by and large, I think it's the tip of the iceberg. I think we could do a lot more. But I, I truly believe that it will help the reputation that corporate America has in general. And I also think it will just provide a tremendous boost to the employees that are in those companies that truly want to do something. They just don't have the time. And, so, and sometimes they just need to be pointed in the right direction. Well, and I love that you let the people in Japan decide how what spoke to them and the people in France do what spoke to them. You know, you know, yeah. I think I think a question for me is I feel like there's such extremes. There's either folks who get hyper focused on the growth and the profits and, and that can be my temptation. Or there's the the folks that like they want to talk about employee engagement in the abstract, not as it relates to a business. So they want to talk about giving back maybe sometimes because it will make them look good. You know, there's a lot of talk the talk going on, but not all the walk the walk, right? Walk the walk, right. Can you talk about, you know, whether it's a startup CEO or any leader navigating this <clears throat> balance beam between the two of not taking the eye off the prize on moving the business forward and yet like actually walking the walk on this, giving back to communities, being involved, having purpose and, and kind of how those two could potentially be at odds and, and how you see harmonizing them or, or how you could maybe help other leaders make their decisions of what's right in their organization. It's, it's funny that you'd say that. I could see how somebody could intuitively say, that they are at odds. I, I just never saw them at, at odds at all. I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I, I think if you have an engaged workforce, you will make the profits, assuming your strategy is the right strategy, you'll make the profits you need to. I, I, never, I never struggled with one versus the other. We never struggled with giving our employees paid time off to, to do this. We never struggled with how much money we would devote to this. And, and we never struggled with the fact that we would support any kind of charity that our employees wanted to, wanted to support. We would be behind them if they put their time into it, as well as their money. We would match whatever it was. And, and I, I guess I just never struggled with the profit side of it because I knew that if we, had, if we could engage the hearts of our employees, we could accomplish great things on the business side. They just are not, they're not at odds. So it's, I understand where you're coming from, Jess, but we never, I never had to fight it. So that's encouraging to hear you say it that way. And maybe to put more of a point on it, I think about somebody who's in startup mode and there are limited hours and dollars or when, you know, in the middle of the financial crisis and the company is bankrupt, almost bankrupt, you know, it's, it's all hands on deck. And yeah. there's at least this feeling of like, well, how much time and money could we give on that? We're, you know, like we're looking at survival here. Sure. And yet it should probably be a lot more than zero. And yet it can feel dangerous to go like, are we taking the eye off the prize or should we get to that once we're successful? And, you know, that, maybe that's more the balance oh, yeah. beam I'm talking about. I, I understand that. And I do understand, look, there's a time and place for everything. And needless to say, if you're scrambling, like we were scrambling the first particularly three or four or five months, we probably weren't doing as much of this as we, as we could but because we didn't have the time. And, and I get that. Everybody has different facts and circumstances. Where I think the problem is, 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 that, is when you begin to think that in normal times, it's, it's not something you need to do. And, and the truth of the matter is that 95% of the time or more, we're actually in more normal times than you think. 
and we can do this. And so, yes, I mean, if you've got a bankrupt company or you have a startup company and you don't, you're penny pinching everything just to make sure that you're, you're putting food on your own table, it's pretty tough. I get that. But I do think you have to remember that he who has been given much, much is asked. And, and I, I believe that many of us are giving, given a lot more than we think we are. And, and when, you, when you drive to the inner city, or in my case, you build homes in Tijuana, and you know whatever the charity that you're involved with, I'm pretty sure that most people in this country would come to the conclusion that there are a lot worse people off than them. And you have to understand that you have been given quite a bit. And, and when, you, when you come to that understanding, it's easier to open up your heart. Well, you know, we've... <clears throat> There's this thing that the human brain tends to answer the question it's been given, right? Like if you say, do we have time for this or not? You might get a yes or no. But if you said, if we were going to make time for this, how could we hit our goals and make time for this? Then the brain will answer that question. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. You know what they teach you is, is to always ask open-ended questions if you want the right answer. <laughs> yeah. Don't give uh, them the chance to say yes or no. Well, I, I really enjoyed this, this session. Where, where do you want to close this off with? What do, you, what do you think is a good subject or story or anything to close this one off with? Oh, boy. I, I, hmm. Well, I could, you know, I could talk about the fact that it doesn't have to always be a charity. You know, I could talk about the solar, the, the, all the solar business that we did. You read that part of the book at, at Prologis, but I don't know if that's a heart warmer. You know what I mean? The second grader is a heart warmer. And I'm good with just, just quitting the way we, we have quit. No, I, I want to hear the so, I want to hear the solar one. I want to hear this. I want to hear the parts that aren't in the book. Well, there's not. Well, I don't know if there's that much about it that's in the, that's not in the book, but it does relate to you know it does relate to doing something your employees want to do. So do you want? Uh, I, yeah. You can you can figure out how it gets integrated, but I'll I'll just and I'll 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 end like this. And 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 let me just say I I don't think just it, it doesn't always have to be something that warms your heart. It doesn't have to be inner city kids. You know, as you said before, in Japan, it was, it was all about cleaning, you know, and, and in France, it was about a bike race. And one of the things that I did notice when I became CEO is that people in our organization, particularly from Europe, were mono-focused on the environment. Now, the world is more focused on the environment today, but 20 years ago, 15 years ago, it really emanated more outside the United States. At least corporate America wasn't all that focused on it. And, and so our people were saying, you know, what are we doing relative to the environment wall? And the more we met, the more we understood that we were the largest owner of roofs in the world. When you think about warehouses, the largest owner of roofs in the world. Well, that's really interesting because those roofs actually cost us money. We have to maintain them every 10 years. And the reason we have to maintain them is because they face the sun. Well, maybe we should think about becoming more of a solar company and producing solar energy with what we have. And it all started from our employees saying this was important to us and us listening to those employees. And so we began to build solar onto the tops of our roofs. Now, at first, it didn't make a lot of financial sense. And we just did it in areas of the world where there were subsidies to do it. And then we began to do it all throughout the world as solar became more popular and the cost of solar came down and the yields, you know, started to get higher. 
And I think Prologis today has developed somewhere in the order of 200 meg megawatts of energy throughout the world. And today they can power something like 30,000 homes on an annual basis just from the solar that touches their roof, you know? And so we became a more environmentally conscious company. I think we put out our first sustainability report in 2004 before anybody even knew what the word sustainability meant. And I think a lot of that was just simply because of the cry that came from our employees. And you know what? That gave our employees a deep sense of purpose and meaning, in particular, our employees in Europe, but increasingly our employees throughout the world, just by listening to the, their outcry, listening to the things that they had to say. So I don't think it's all about you know giving back, if you will, to the world in ways that touch your heart necessarily, but it is giving back to, to the world in, in ways that make a, a meaningful difference. And I think those are the things that leaders ought to be seeking to provide the meaning and purpose in the eyes of their employees that, that need to take place today. You know, another aspect of that story that I really enjoy is such a theme in, in your book of humility and leadership. I think I look at some of my leadership blind spots and big mistakes that I was making. You know, I was a 28-year-old CEO of a private equity fund. And I really wanted to feel important. And when you start making a lot of money and you're like this young whippersnapper, people treat you different. And so, you know, even though it was like, it was in a really small pond, I was kind of a big fish in this really small pond, right? And like the, the opportunity for arrogance is so big when you have external evidence. Like any temptation to feel like I was special was heavily supported by the people around me treating me different, right? Right. And and yet I think about how many lessons I've enjoyed from your book and getting to know you and that same thing there of like, you know, let's say that solar wasn't personally your passion, the, the, like the humility to pull back and go like, well, the, this business is more than one person. It's not a tyrant with a thousand helpers, right? You think about what it means to people to be listened to and how often in the name of efficiency, people are not listened to, especially people who aren't at the top of the food chain, right? Exactly right. And, and the one thing I've learned, learned as a leader, Jess, is that your people know a lot more about the business than you do. You might think you do as the, the person at the top, but the fact is that they're living it every day and we need to be listening. And the more we listen, the more we learn and the better leaders we become. You know, one, one last question I had is when you talk about Germany and France and Japan and stuff, about how many, how many team members did you have globally while, while you were CEO? We, you know, we were more of a capital intensive business. So we had yeah. roughly 2000 employees throughout 2000. the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's great context. Well, listen, this has been fun. Now I'm really looking forward to the next part here. So everybody, please tune back in. The next one is going to be about the idea of when you encounter adversity, run towards it. So I, I'm excited to hear what Walt's got to say about it. And, and I hope you all turn in. Can't wait. In. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.